Hello, and welcome to DOS Game Club episode 53. Now, this is a very special episode. As you may have noticed, we have called this year the year of the adventure game. Adventure games are really a staple of DOS gaming, and we figured we didn't really have enough adventure games in the club so far. So we've only had two graphics and one text adventure over the course of four years, so we thought we had to do something. And that's why we decided to make 2021 a year in which every other month will be one adventure game. Now, February is just over, and we have played Day of the Tentacle in that month. As some of you probably know, Day of the Tentacle is actually Maniac Mansion 2 Day of the Tentacle, so we essentially picked that game so that we could discuss two games at the price of one, because Maniac Mansion is actually fully included in Day of the Tentacle. The company that made Maniac Mansion and Day of the Tentacle is LucasArts, and they are really synonymous with point-and-click adventures nowadays. And we've actually had the chance to talk to one of the first employees at the Lucasfilm Games Division, David Fox. He had key positions in games such as Labyrinth, Maniac Mansion, Zack McCracken, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, or more recently on Thimbleweed Park. He literally helped give birth to the entire genre of point-and-click adventures, and we are really humbled by the fact that he took the time to talk to us. So, Martin is doing most of the interviewing, I'm mostly here for moral support. But you're not here to listen to me talking, but to David, so let's not waste any more time. So yeah, th- thanks again for being here. I mean, it's it's a huge honor and a pleasure to to have you on the show. Thank you. We we've done these kinds of interviews well occasionally, but like regularly, we we just discuss games in a more of a club setting with people who've played them. So this is really exciting to have someone on who has actually made these games. You know, it's uh, it's different. So the reason why we've invited you now. Uh, Because actually we've been doing this DOS Game Club thing for a couple of years. But we noticed that, you know, despite the adventure game is is kind of a staple of the DOS game, well, uh, ecosystem, we've not really played a whole lot of them. So we decided we should change this. So 2021 is our year of the adventure game. And we're playing adventure games every other month. Because normally we pick a, a different game each month. And now... All the even months, they're adventure games. And we thought it would be cool to start with one of the big Lucas games. So uh, we started with like doing Day of the Tentacle, but that also includes Maniac Mansion, right? Because that's like fully part of that game. And it's actually sort of perfect because then we get to talk about both of them and, and about the scum system and all that stuff. So yeah, that's that's really the reason why we reached out to you. Okay. I, I, I hope you can just tell us some insights about all this stuff. I'm sure, I mean, you were there, right? So, surely. Well, for, for some of it, I wasn't there for Day of the Tentacle, but no, I, could talk, no, exactly. I could talk about the earlier stuff. Exactly. Well, that's maybe an interesting starting point, right? Because I read that you were a founding member of the Lucas Game Division, but surely things happened before that. I mean, surely you didn't walk out of the house into into Lucas. <laughs> So maybe you can just tell us about those early pre-Lucas days and what 
what you were up to, what what was happening. Sure. Um, so around the mid seventies, I had been doing working as a counselor, working with with people individually, helping them with their lives and stuff like that. And I had the idea that I'm like wondering if there was a way to impact more people if you could do it through interactive entertainment of some sort, like games. And kind of pictured a interactive, an interactive Disneyland kind of environment where you, where you go on these rides and it's different every time, and things you do will change the outcome, and that it would be you know very immersive. You know, I didn't have the tech, the terms for that then because no one had talked about VR or location based entertainment or any of those things, and. Realized I I didn't know anything about how to do that. So um, my wife and I started out by opening a a nonprofit educational microcomputer center. And we had started with 10 computers. This is 1977. And kids and adults would come in and rent time on the computers. We teach classes. And a lot of what I was doing was after we got going, was looking at other games that have been coming out. We would review them for the Creative Computing Magazine. And then I started doing conversions um, reports from TRS-80-based games. So these were the Adventure International text adventures over to the Apple II. And in that process, I got to look at Scott Adams' code and see what he was doing, what his logic was. And just, you know, I, I just liked the adventure games. I liked the feeling that there was some intel, uh, the appearance of intelligence on the other side, and that you could come up with some crazy idea and try it, and it would actually work, or at least there, there'd be a response. Uh, so I felt like I was playing directly with the creator of that program. And if I came up with an idea that he had already, then uh, it just made me smart, seem smart too. <laughs> we both had the same idea. Yeah. So, so that was great. Um, and I also was writing some books. And the last one I was working on was called Computer Animation Primer. And we were going to uh, co-wrote that with my friend Mitch Waite. And we were we set out to have the first half of the book look at overall computer graphics at the time and also high-end computer graphics and what was being used in movies. Um, just a, this kind of the start of, of that. There hadn't been a lot of that yet. Um, and the second half was how to do animation on your Atari 800. And that's the part I wrote mostly. Uh, during the research, though, I I reached out to Lucasfilm because I had heard that they had a relatively new computer division that they had set up and ha- coincidentally happened to be in the same county that we that we had our computer center in, that we lived in. And they were super friendly and accommodating and long conversations and tours. I got footage to use in the book of videos and animations and still shots from various movies like um, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, that they had some computer graphics, the Genesis effect. And 
a year later, I was finishing the book, manuscript was done. And one of our members at the computer center happened to work at Industrial Light and Magic. And he said that um, he had heard that there was a new games group starting up at Lucas inside of the computer division. And you know, that was kind of a dream to work for that company. Um, yeah. I, mean, I wanted to be in Star Wars as close as I get to be in Star Wars <laughs> as I could. Um, see, this is 1982. Um, the first two films had already been out and loved them both. And I got an interview. Um, they had just hired the manager. He hadn't even started yet. So I got an interview. I was probably one of the first piece, people they talked to and... Uh, three months later, I got the job and um, I was, I guess, officially number three, employee number three in the games group after Peter Langston, who was the manager, and Rob Poor, who came over from the um, other part of the computer division on, on I think, of a laser film printer that he was working on. And um, so I was... You know, saying I was a founding member. I mean, I didn't come up with the idea. Right. And let's do it. But but you were there, and it seems like you were the, you were the first outside person, maybe. Yeah. Other than Peter, who was also an outside person who got hired, I was the first one he hired from the outside. So I I, I say number three, uh, um, and everything just lined up in the fact that I had been doing this book on computer computer animation on the Atari eight hundred and funding to launch the computer, the games group came from Atari um, with the idea that we would do some, our, our, all of our games would be first for the Atari 800 and 5200. And that um, I was already in the county and that I was an enthusiast. And Peter was actually looking for people who didn't have formal game training or you know, people who did not come from a large game company at the time. Um, cause we kind of wanted to come up with our own procedures and ideas and, and not rely on past experience in that area. So that was also a perfect, so everything just lined up. Yeah. It seems a bit early maybe to discount large game stuff. I mean, was there even large games? I, I suppose Atari was doing things, but yeah, I'd say Atari was the big one. There were a couple other companies that were, I mean, if you look at the arcades, um, then you have like Williams and um, what what else was out there at the time? Um, Not a lot. You know, <laughs> no, there are a lot. So so all, so all the arcades. There weren't a lot of home gaming companies. I think Activision was already doing stuff. Um, so it it was really, um, you know, that that helped. I mean, where otherwise that would have been probably a negative. It actually turned out to be a positive in helping me get the job. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me um, that that you sort of became interested in games because of adventure games. Yes, I mean a lot of people I think were first, you know, into the arcade and and stuff like that, and and you know came into contact with games through stuff like I don't know Pong or Pac Man or that sort of stuff. Well, I think well my first game experience was in nineteen seventy one. And it wasn't even in an arcade. I don't think there were video games in arcades yet. Um, and it was um, a Space Wars game played on a CRT uh, during a field trip down to Stanford Research Institute when I was in college. 
and you know they had these two little white triangles on a black screen with little dots that represented stars and you could push a button and these little periods or dots would shoot out which would be your bullets and or missiles and you could attack the other ship and it, it, there was no sound it was just you know the the computer was probably a large mini computer in another room and it was, you know, but something about that was just like, whoa, it, it kind of threw me back. It's like, this is, this is really cool. I didn't think I, I didn't make the decision. This is what I want to do, but I was just totally captivated by it. And, and during the time we were doing, getting ready to do the computer center, um, a, a nearby school loaned me a Texas Instruments um, printer terminal. So it just used paper, thermal printer. You, Dial, dial up via 300 baud modem to a remote computer and to try to play games on that since it was all remote um the best kinds of games were text-based games so, and so i was playing you know the, the adventure game um the, you know the colossal cave adventure game as the first experience so that all that was just really you know kind of captivating yeah i can see that yeah <laughs> Cool. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Star Wars, right, Florian? Yeah, that's, that's actually interesting. We got a question from one of our listeners who um, asked, why is, there no, why, why has there never been a scum game set in the Star Wars universe? And the real question is, would you have wanted to work on a Star Wars game? And Yeah, well, well the, first que- the second question I'll answer first, which was, yeah. Hell <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I had assumed that all the games you were going to do were going to be Star Wars games when I first started working there. And the first game that I want, that I was working on was Rescue on Fractalus, which um, was envisioned as a first-person flight shooter game in a Star Wars universe. And on day, maybe day two, um, I found out that, no, sorry, you can't do Star Wars games. Um, what? <laughs> it was because in 1982... This is the height of everything Star Wars. Um, all the rights to Star Wars games had already been sold to other other companies. So Atari had the arcade rights, and Kenner was were make they were making action figures, and they also owned Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers was doing video games, so they had the rights to do the home for the home market. Um, at the time, it was mostly the Atari twenty six hundred. Um, but still, we, we couldn't do it because we would be in conflict with the, um, the contracts or the, the rights that have already been sold. Um, I think also on a fi- purely financial basis, if they could be guaranteed you know, huge advances in royalties without risking any money, um, that seemed like a better way to go at the time than invest you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in a game with the risk of it not being um not making as much or not getting the, the proceeds from it so it really wasn't until early 90s that even we even started looking at doing any kind of star wars games um and you know that was after the films had been out for seven years and i guess the value of the licenses was less. Maybe they had expired. I don't know exactly, but they were willing to do it. And also by then we'd already had two successful attempts of creating 
games based on films. You know, the Labyrinth game, which I worked on, um, and also Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which I worked on. And those were both available for for us to do games. I think they were thinking, okay, let's do this as a low-risk experiment, especially for Labyrinth. Um, but for, for Last Crusade, it just seemed like a natural to do an adventure game from it based on that. So, so, so well, we just answered the first part of the question. Um, so I think that, the, I believe there was actually a concept out there for um, an adventure game based on Star Wars, but that was after my time. So like during the, but most of the time I was there, which was really until 1990 inside of Lucasfilm Games slash LucasArts. Then the last two years, I was working on a location-based entertainment project inside of Lucasfilm, but, but in a separate small group. Um, and during that entire time I was doing home games, there really wasn't that opportunity to do it. And I definitely would have liked to have done it. That would have been fun. But, you know, in, in retrospect, um, I think, you know, at the time I was really upset at first. Um, but in retrospect, and, and hearing stories about how difficult it was to deal with everything inside of Lucasfilm to, that dealt with Star Wars, you know, how much attention they had to put on it and, and um, maybe having George come in and say, no, change this, change that. Um, he didn't care about the games we were working on. So he never really came in and told us to change stuff other than the the first two games we worked on. He, he actually got early an early look. Um, and by not having that, having him over our shoulder, watching what we were doing, meant that we could have pretty much unfettered creativity without him saying, oh, I want you to do this kind of a game next. So we just did what we wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sort of sense, yeah. Yeah. So so he did, he was involved with the first two games, George Lucas then? Just barely. I mean, he, he came in for a 20-minute test ride, really. I mean, he did, this is like pre-beta probably. And he was in my office 20, for about 20 minutes playing the game and then had some really good comments that, shifted the game um, the design somewhat and but after that I don't think he really came in before the games were pretty much done and it, so it was more of a hey why don't check what we, out what we did um, but he didn't really t- you know give us suggestions on how to change stuff right and those first two games they were the fractalus game and ball blazer right yeah exactly yeah. right wasn't it kind of surreal anyway to be suddenly at this ranch of his? I mean, it seems like a sort of mystical, magical place if you read about it. But Yeah, well, the first few years, we, the ranch was still being built, so we weren't there yet. And I think we moved there around 85, 84, 85, and we were there for about four years. And being at the company was, was still like, you know, I, I would take me a few months before I wasn't surprised that they gave me a paycheck. <laughs> so wait, I get to work here and you're actually paying me to work here. Uh, so I was look at these, this, you know, every week, it was two weeks, you know, you look at the check and say, Oh my God, I'm getting, I'm getting paid to doing something I love doing. And also, you know, I'm sure that I was worried that, um, I, that they had screwed up, that I shouldn't have been hired, that, you know, imposter syndrome, um, that, 
I remember someone getting fired in another division for something. And I just really wanted to find out everything I could about what happened to make sure that I didn't do whatever that person did. Yeah. Um, or, they, or that they even paid any attention to me to think that maybe I shouldn't really, we shouldn't be there. Um, so yeah, that was, that was amazing. Then when we finally got to the ranch, um, that was wonderful pla- a wonderful place to work at. And it was too far away to really go out for lunch anywhere. It was a good 20 minute drive on really curvy roads to get to the nearest restaurant. Because it's in the desert, right? No, it's in the forest. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there, 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 there are open, open hills, rolling hills in Marin County. There's, you know, huge forests, there are redwood forests, there are fir forests. It's really beautiful. Nice. Um, I think it's, sorry, I forgot now. He had hundreds of acres, I think, at some point of, of land. Um, I used to know the numbers. I don't know right now. <laughs> Doesn't uh, really matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so they had food service there. Um, there, you know, first it was in the main house, there was a dining area and it was pay for it, but it was subsidized, like maybe $5 a meal and came out of your paycheck. If you, you signed in and you get charged for it. Um, but really good food, you know, they're really great chef. And then they had a more casual area they opened up later, which is more you know, burgers or other things like that. So you had some choice. And and during the times we were working, doing crunch, where I knew I was going to stay late, um, I would just take a larger portion because it was all self-serve and take half of it back to the, back to my office, stick it in the fridge and then have that for dinner. And um, so uh, it was, it was, that was good. Um, you know, most of the meals were the people, the, the people in the games group would hang out together and talk. And um, we had a few different areas we could eat in. That was really beautiful. There was a solarium with trees and like glass, glass um, ceilings and, and like a hothouse, but you know, really large one um, with tables set up for food and, or outside or whatever. So it, it, you could take walks if you wanted to think about um, think about something. You know, they had bikes available to, to ride around the property. Nice. But, you know, the truth is when you're really working hard on a computer programming problem, you'd be in a closet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'd have to look up and look out the window and, and notice that there's a, you know, there's a forest outside. Um, or the, oh, there's a bobcat. Um, and that was, you know, it took, you know, it didn't take too long before we kind of got used to that. In the winter time, they had a there was a fireplace in the common area, and there'd always be a fire running in there, and you know, it's just a really nice, cozy thing, uh, place to work. I also also when I first started working there, um, what, what, as soon as I got my own office, which was about three months in, um, I got to go to this closet where they had stored all these pre-production paintings from Ralph Macquarie. And choose the ones I wanted to put in my office. And, you know, these are the originals that he had painted for, you know, the look of the the movie. So I had three of them hanging on my wall for the whole time I was there, which was really nice. That's awesome. Yeah. You mentioned Crunch real real quick when we were talking about the the food stuff. And actually, we got a question in from from a club member who said that 
Um, we hear a lot about crunch in the game industry these days. And the question is, was it was it any different back then? And and would you think game development in general is is different at a more modern uh, AAA studio now than it was compared to back then? Yeah, well, there was already kind of a culture of crunch from in the movie industry. So um, within the company, you know, we knew that Industrial Light and Magic would be working all hours to meet deadlines to get the effects done for a movie. And when you had these hard deadlines, you really couldn't just, you know, work your normal, uh, really it was 50-hour weeks, not 40-hour weeks. So everyone was expected to work 50 hours. And you, so people working late, you kind of felt like, oh, okay, we do that too. And, and so we, I think we were actually proud of that when we got into that mode. Most of the time, um, during the vast majority of the project, at least the ones I was on, it was more normal hours. You know, you really wouldn't be working late. Um, but as you got towards maybe the last two to three months, then it might increase, especially when you had commitments you'd already made when the Gold Master was going to be released. So then you had to really push. Um, you know, you know we, we were all paid, you know, um, yearly salaries, basically. So putting in extra time didn't, we never got paid for overtime. That was not part of that culture. I've never worked for a AAA studio, so I don't know directly whether, um, how different that is now. Um, when I was working with Ron more recently on Thimbleweed Park, it was really important that we try to keep it to straight work hours and not go into crunch mode. And I think we did a pretty good job. Um, although I think Ron probably did it for himself. Most of the rest of us weren't doing much of that. And the idea that you really need the work-life balance and you, know, you have to really have time to recharge and get out. And for me, like do hikes with my wife and, and our dog and, and um, time where I'm just not thinking about anything to do with the project. And that really helps. But this seems more of a modern way to look at it, maybe. Like what you said, they were proud of the crunch back then. So maybe maybe it's also because everyone was quite young. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't do what I, you know, that kind of a crunch now without getting really burned out. Um, it just, I don't bounce back in the same way that I could back then. Maybe, maybe it's fun if we talk a little bit about Labyrinth, because that really is the first lucas adventure game isn't it yes and also probably the first adventure game you worked on as far as i'm aware anyway yeah that's that's true other in terms of creating our own game if you don't count the the um ports i was doing of the of the adventure games um that was um i mean we didn't have we, we knew about the the type of game of being an adventure game from the work Sierra had been doing. And I knew, I was familiar with their games back at the computer center too. Um, they were experimenting with what they were calling graphic adventures where you'd have on the Apple II, they'd do like a, a vector art line drawing of the room, you know, just really rough and you know, kind of advanced from there. But it really was more giving you an image to hang onto as opposed to moving a character around the room initially. So it's more like a picture book in a sense. 
Yeah, I think the Mystery House game was like that. Yeah. Where it was more, yeah, yeah. Um, for for Labyrinth, the one of the big questions, I mean, so once we decided we were going to do like an adventure game, one of the big questions was whether we should do a text parser to so you could type in text. And we had, again, we had a deadline. Movie was coming out. We wanted to get the game done to kind of match the release of the film if possible, although I think we missed that by a couple months. And we knew we wouldn't have time to do a sophisticated parser by then, you know, whereas Sierra had been working on refining theirs for years by that point. Um, to do it from scratch would, would have been really tough. And another thing too is, is translations. Like if we were to, um, I think it's much easier to port or translate or localize a game when you don't have to worry about all that text and what what it means and different ways to do it, which might be one of the reasons why our games became much more popular in Europe than Sierra's did, because we could much more easily do those localization versions. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so um, during our design, it came, you know, we said, okay, let's come up with a way where we could have a set number of verbs and objects, and I, I was the one who had the idea of doing kind of this slot machine style interface with scrolling wheels that you would choose which of you know which verb and which object based on either inventory or something that was in the room. I don't I don't remember. Can you click on the object in the room? I don't know if you could. Uh, um, I don't think so because you control the guy, right? Yeah, you do control the guy. Um, I think you might be able to click on something. I, I don't remember now. It's been a while. I have not, not actually played this game, but I've watched some footage. And based on that, it seems that the list uh, of objects dynamically changes mm-hmm. like from where you move. And then you can just change a different object from the list. It's like, a yeah, this word wheel thing. I know the list of verbs also changed in different parts of the game. Right. Um, so a group of us went to London to brainstorm this game early on. And we got to spend a week with Douglas Adams. I know. Who was a friend of Jim Henson. So he was there for... <laughs> How did this happen? I mean, this yeah. seems so random. I, well, he was, he was friends with Jim Henson. And I was a Jim Henson. He, he, Jim Henson was the director. And um, so they were... Their workshop was in, in London. That's where they're doing all the, all the creature shop stuff. And I think all the footing, the shooting was done there. And... So that was just something that was offered to us. I said, yes, absolutely. Wow, yeah. I think um, three of us from our team and Brenda Laurel, who was the Activision producer, was going to be um, Activision, had the, was going to publish the game. So we, we had not been publishing our own titles yet. And uh, Christopher Surf from Children's Television Workshop, who's also a really good friend of Jim Henson's, they're the Sesame Street people. Um, he came with us, and it was it was great. I mean, I, I, I even more so was probably had my mouth open. I mean, in, in this case, I I knew his books. I'd read the Hitchhiker's books, so I was already in awe of him, which was probably a bad thing. <laughs> Not being able to just you know feeling like I was talking to an idol, and you know, always felt like I was stuttering and. And stammering, and and I mean, he was nothing but kind and and sweet and understanding, but also you know brilliant and funny and 
a bunch of his ideas ended up in the game. Uh, the the whole thing with Adam Braith the elephant, and I don't know whether that's a verb I had never heard of before. And this is just something which seemed hilariously funny at the time, which in retrospect was probably one of those things that, you know, you, you probably should have been thought about twice, but because Doug had the idea, we said, okay, let's go with that. He also had the idea of, of um, opening the game as a, as a black, as a text only adventure and um, kind of, coming from the Wizard of Oz movie opening where, where it's black and white first and then opens up to co- full color. Um, the idea that since people were more familiar with text adventures, like from Infocom, that we kind of train people how to use the uh, verb wheels, um, the slot machine interface in a very short introductory text adventure. And then once you go to this movie, you end up being pulled into the game and then it turns into a graphic adventure. And Kind of interesting concept. I don't know if people got it. I, I don't know if there were any people who tried that and just said, forget this. I don't want another text adventure. Um, although, you know, the, the packaging showed that it was graphical. Um, it was just an interesting thing. So that was kind of an um, interesting idea of his. Um, so it was kind of up to me to take all of the brainstorming notes and, you know, choose which things to do and not do and you know, cut the game down to something which we could actually implement and then, you know, come up with an overall design. And um, Charlie Kellner was the technical lead and he came up with the system and way to do it. But it was all done in, in 6502. So we didn't have, or assembly, uh, we didn't have any kind of a gaming environment. So it was, you know, everything was hard-coded. And that made it you know, probably a lot harder to create the game than than when we actually started doing scum games. Mm. And also to port it to other systems, probably. Um, porting, yes, I think so. Unless they were 6502 based, in which case that part was, was okay. Um, but yeah, for sure. I was wondering, you were saying you um, you met Douglas Adams and you were basically starstruck and you have been working with all these immensely creative people before and it was actually Douglas Adams who made you stammering and all of that. Well, I, I probably started with, with George also. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he didn't came around enough. <laughs> yeah, well, well prior, to, prior to the experience of Douglas, there wasn't anyone really famous I think we were working with. Um, there, there were a couple of times, like when, like on Rescue on Fractalus, where like Kathleen Kennedy and um, you know people from from the film industry came in to take a look, and George was kind of showing our stuff off. Um, but other than that, I think George is really the only person who was famous. I remember meeting uh, later on that that probably changed, um, but yeah. So did you actually meet with with any of the film people, like like Jim Henson or David Bowie or any of them? Yeah, Jim Henson. Well, David Bowie, no. I mean, he was an actor in the film, so he wouldn't be a part of it. Um, but um, we actually had dinner at Douglas's house one night, and Douglas and his, I believe it was his girlfriend, I don't know if they were married, um, his partner made the dinner, and... Jim Henson came over for dinner and I remember Jim bringing him a large salmon. And <laughs> I think that was around the time that, you know, thanks for all the fish had come out 
the <laughs> night. So that was a joke in relation to that. And Jim actually sat opposite me at the dinner table. It was just a long table with everyone sitting at it. And he he also was just, you know, as as sweet and, and warm and as you would as you everyone had said. But it was disconcerting because I'd be eating my food and I'd hear Kermit the Frog talking. Exactly. <laughs> I just kind of look up and say, "Oh, oh, right, oh, right." What? <laughs> That's great. And, and um, you know, we talked. I remember. I don't remember. Have, have no recollection of, of what what conversations were. And um, but yeah, that was that was also really nice. But you know, it's someone who both of these people who were just so. Um, so nice and and had no I, I didn't pick up any ounce of you know, prima donna ish behavior they were just very down to earth very very nice very accommodating and i'm sure they had been had lots of experience of people being uncomfortable in that situation um they, they were great i actually went back to england um during the time that the games were being ported um, to other platform to Labyrinth was to kind of do a check and see how things were going and ended up um, going out to dinner with Douglas and his partner. And, you know, that was even worse because that was just the three of us. And I, <laughs> I just, I, again, they were doing everything they could to be really nice. And I just felt so awkward. And I mean, I'm this young, how old was I? 85. So I was about 35 years old. And um, I, I just, it was, it, it was one of those things. Like I wish that I had a lot more poise than I did and I could actually be witty and funny and, and uh, oh, well, you know, they didn't, they weren't, they didn't say, well, don't ever come talk to us again. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. That does seem amazing. Yeah. You talked a little bit about, about them porting the game over in England. Um, the reason I didn't play this game is actually because it never was released on the the IBM PC. It was never released for for DOS, which was the only computer I had at home. Right. So, so how did you guys even decide what platforms you would release these games on? Well, for that, then it would it would have been Activision's decision. Activision probably did the ports, and I think in their UK offices. Um. I don't think DOS had a big market share yet. Um, it was probably still a little bit too early. And the game didn't have legs. You know, it didn't last long enough on the charts for them to decide to bring it over to other more modern platforms. Um, the movie itself kind of did kind of, I don't know that it did very well at the time. I think it became much more of a cult classic afterwards. So there wasn't a lot of money put into marketing the game because the game didn't care. The movie didn't carry the game as much as they would have liked. So, um, yeah, I'm sure it costs a lot to port it to each platform. And I guess DOS just wasn't there at the time. Also would have probably been a CGA version, which would have been not, not great, so great looking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. Are you sure that it didn't get ported to DOS? Because I, I really don't remember now. Well, if it got, then at least Moby Games is out of date. So yeah, yeah and Wikipedia as well. Okay. No, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. It does mention, however, that actually the game did better than the film in terms of like uh, revenue. Um, well, I don't know if it did better in terms of overall. I have no idea what the numbers were. 
but it might have been that in relation to how how a good game could be to a good film, uh, maybe it did proportionally better. Was what I would guess. I can't imagine that they made more money off of the game. It it, it says it was a bigger commercial success. So yeah, that would that kind of would that's probably good language. To use. <laughs> <laughs> a bit fake, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, so there was not the engine in this game uh, used. Did you think about that sort of stuff? Like, did you, maybe we should make an engine for this or? No, I, I don't think we did. Um, we, at the time, since we were doing stuff for 6502, we already had a pretty nice cross assembler. So we were using uh, probably at that time Sun Microsystem Unix workstations to do all the coding on and we would push a button and it would compile it down and send it over to the Commodore 64, which is the target platform for this. It would do the, I think, you know, if it would either write it, probably write it on the disc, a floppy disc, and then then you'd boot the game up to, to test it. But it was a coding environment, which is probably a lot better than we could have done uh, natively on the Commodore 64. It really wasn't until... Maniac Mansion and, and Ron actually started coding it the same way, you know, hard coding in 6502 in Assembler. And um, I think pretty quickly realized that he never finished the game if he did it that way. It was just too big. And well, is, think, it, is it really so much bigger than Labyrinth? I think it probably is um, in terms of gameplay. It, it may not seem as big because you, you have... You know, to get through from start to finish may not be might be equivalent, but the fact that you have all these multiple ways to play it with different combinations of kids means that it's replayable a bunch of different times with totally different puzzles. And if you were to string those out end to end instead of kind of a, a parallel tracks through di- with different group of kids that you've chosen, then I think it'd be a lot larger. It also also meant we had a much less control in labyrinth than we did here in terms of what how you know cut the whole idea of cutscenes and having characters do stuff that you were under your control and just really giving commands in a way which felt almost more like giving stage direction to the characters on the screen as opposed to writing program code right yeah because yeah i think you're right in labyrinth there are not a lot of situations where well, where you're not directly controlling the character. Yeah, we might have triggered something which was done interactive, but we didn't. We never cut away. We never had story-based cutscenes like we did in Maniac Mansion. And I think early on, when Ron realized that this was going to take forever, he talked with Chip Morningstar, and Chip was the one who suggested doing um, doing an engine like a P, P code spit out P code that compiled it. And um, that's the, that's probably what took a lot, took a long time to do it. Cause then Ron spent maybe nine months to a year creating the scum engine and scum, all the tools that went with it before we actually even started doing the game. So were you actually involved in scum's development or were you more on the user side of things? Yeah. The user side, you know, Ron had just finished, the first pass of the engine when he asked me if I would be interested in coding, you know, doing being the scripter for the game. 
And, you know, I've told this before. I think he, he said, hey, hey, you know, I think this was like end of maybe sometime in November of that year. And he said, hey, she should have it done in a couple of months. It shouldn't take too long to do it. And um, clearly that wasn't the case. It was, you know, much bigger. Um, part of, partly because of the fact that we did have all those different combinations of, of characters she could choose. Um, I was on it for at least six months. And then I went off to start working on my next game, which was going to be Zach McCracken. And Ron was still working on finishing that up and tying up all the, you know, the debugging and I mean, fixing all the issues that came up because of all the multiple paths you could take. Um, and that kind of, because of that, I decided in the next, I would never do a game where you had that many options in the beginning to choose different characters. It, that that would be determined and that the game would be straight through linear, at least in terms of, um, you could maybe have different paths and how to, how to do something, but not huge, completely different game by having a different group of kids that you were going to, work with yeah yeah were you aware of any uh like any of the other engines that other but there were other studios doing basically this as well sierra had an interpreter and infocom had an engine as well is that where you took inspiration from or well i i I suppose you have to guess for ron now but was this discussed yeah i don't know I, i i think it came out of uh chips chip morningstar's work with habitat and that was the Commodore 64 based or the Quantum Link um, multi, you know, kind of, uh, multi media, multi person thing. MMR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. He, he had, you know, all that was also done interpretive with P code. Uh, because for that one, they had to constrain how much data was going back and forth from the servers to the hosts, the local machines. And one of the ways to do that was to encode everything. And, and that's where I think that idea came from, partly. I don't know whether he had a scripting language in that or not. Um, but, um, you know, Scum was, you know, was super fun to, to work in compared to having to code it directly. I could actually feel like I was typing, you know, giving English commands, you know, sentence commands for, for the character to, to do stuff. Um, on the other hand, it was sometimes painful working on a system which was in process of being completed so that, you know, I could spend an hour or two trying to figure out why my code wasn't working before I realized it wasn't me. It was, you know, the engine was broken in some area. And <laughs> yeah. so that was always, or something that worked before it stopped working. And, that you know, that's always the case when you have the engine is in progress, in process of changing. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I, I assume you're aware of Scum VM. Yes. The re-implementation of many, many adventure game engines. So what do you think about that? I mean, you're you're in the credit section for them and the special things, so. Um, well, that was, that was a surprise. I mean, when I first found out about it, it was probably in 2004. Um at the time we were doing these games, we all assumed that the games would have a two or three year lifespan and that people would then forget about them because there wouldn't be any platforms that could play the games. You know, that, you know, how long do, how long do you keep a computer before the computer changes? And I figured that would all go away. And we just 
didn't consider that it might be emulators, that as computers got faster, they you could emulate a computer or have an emulator of an emulator. Or, uh, <laughs> um, and then this kind of VM is essentially, you know, partly that. And they, you know, the fact that it was all the, you know, fan created retrofitting or, or games to, to work with that was just um, surprising. I think the, the first time I learned was I went to a conference in Norway in 2004 and someone showed me Zach running on an, a Nokia phone. <laughs> and, and I said, what? And, and everyone knew the games. And, and, you know, this is like 15 years after they came out. And um, I was just, I was blown away by that. So yeah, from the point of view of, of people having access to these games forever, really, um, is kind of fun. We, I really didn't have any direct connection with anyone who played the games during the time, around the time that we released them. So now with social media and, you know, speaking at conferences or other, other places to actually hear from people who've played them and their memories. And, you know, remember, you know, I played this with my brother when we were seven years old and now I'm playing with my seven-year-old son and, and, you know, things like that are just really heartwarming. So uh, I love that that came out and there was that opportunity for people to play them for much longer than we expected. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. We actually got a, a question about this from from a club member who asks, what does it feel like knowing that you help give life to an entire genre of games? Yeah, um, I'm I'm honored to be able to have the chance to do that. Um, and, you know, I think maybe partly because we, I wasn't all that aware of the people playing the games afterwards i i didn't have them in my mind as much i just knew that i wanted to create something that i would think would be fun to play and that people would um you know i i did occasionally think of like okay imagining someone discovering this little piece of something happening in a game and and how that would be and it was usually um coming from a place of offering people a good experience. I mean, I wasn't doing it from like a sadistic point of view. <laughs> um, let's make the game so hard that they're going to be have terrible. And I think that's what kind of what turned me off about some of the Sierra games I played at the time was that I felt that I was seeing this programmer madly chuckling in his or her cubicle, imagining all the different ways that they got you to die before you could finish the game and ways that made no sense in terms of actual gameplay. So I think we tried to steer away from that point of view and, and, and felt much more like we were playing with our players as opposed to trying to thwart them. But we wanted, we wanted them to get through the whole game and we wanted them to have fun with the story and, and not get stuck. Even though you could actually get stuck in, in the early Lucas games, yeah, um, and that was probably that evolved. Um, you know, some of it was just bad game design. It's like, oh yeah, you could get sick that way. And some of it was was probably the idea that you know you you want the player to have to save the game often and come back and reload and, and do it. The big difference was we were trying to make the if you did die on the early ones, it should be telegraphed and not um, arbitrary. So, like, if you're going to jump out of an airplane without a parachute, 
um, even if the character says, I don't think we should, I should jump out of the airplane with a parachute <laughs> and you choose to do it, then yeah, you probably should, you know, you could die. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. That's not, that's not so unfair as, as in some other games where, yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we got another question also about this dead end stuff. Um, asking, this is about Maniac Mansion, but I, I suppose it, it counts for all the games. Were end sequences ever discussed for the dead ends? Like you could end the game there just with a little cutscene. Because sometimes you don't even notice you're stuck, right? Sometimes you've missed an item and... I don't, I, again, I think that was just um, probably more poor game design. I think, you know, the test just saying, you know, in this point here, you, you're you're stuck. You can never, once you forget this one thing at that point of the game, you can never, it's impossible to win it. Um, that was probably considered more a feature in terms of expanding the replayability time, how long it would take to actually get through the game. Um, in, in say, Thimbleweed Park, that would be a, a big no-no. I mean, we would, we would make sure that at every point you could be guaranteed to complete the game. Yeah, but that wasn't really a set rule in the beginning at all. Right. Yeah. Right. I read your, your uh, you mentioned this also, by the way, your, your role on Maniac Mansion was uh, to be the script programmer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what does it actually mean? Like, did you have any creative input in that? Would you discuss things? Would you make up things or? Yeah, it was, it's pretty much all that. I mean, I, there, the overall design was complete, but it was pretty rough. It was more like an outline as opposed to here's what the characters are going to say at this point. So um, Ron would often write, I mean, I wasn't the only one. Ron did some, a lot of it too. Um, and he would write dialogue and cutscenes that kind of set the tone for each of the characters. And I would try to mimic that tone so that you know, it felt like it was in the same universe and he might massage my text to make it fit closer to what he would have done. So it was kind of a back and forth on that. But um, I think a lot of what I was doing was like, say, wiring up the room. I would get the, the room from the artist and then have to decide where the character can walk and what are the, the objects in the room that are touchable and what you could do with them and how do you pick up objects and and then when is a cutscene triggered and um, having a cutscene where, you know, or, or in the background, a script that's kicking, say, weird ad from his room down to through the different floors, down to the living room. How long should it take for him to get there? And what happens if you walk into one of the rooms he's passing through? Would you run into him? And um, so a lot of that. And um, so it's like the basic gameplay logic of everything, of how it all, it all holds together. But also writing some little bits here and there. Yeah. I think it was quite common, actually, at the time to be a programmer slash writer. Yeah, I was definitely um, felt like I was had free reign to, to do a lot of the writing. And, and like, you know, if, if since Ron was primarily the, the leader on this, really Ron and Gary, but Ron was the one who would do the, the text, do all the dialogue. So he would go in there and might make it funnier, make it wackier or... Um, you know, back and forth. I don't remember exactly. We didn't have the same tools we do now, so I could check and say, "Oh, I see which line he just changed." Now, now, now I could you know look and and get and see exactly what the code was that got changed before it got it gets submitted, so that makes it easier. Um, and, and then you know, then I might go back in and, and adjust it his writing in some way. So you kind of be back and forth and and let people know what you did. Um, see, so on Zach McCracken, 
I was started off as the primary scripter besides being the designer. But then I brought in Matthew Kane, who also had already was already working in a different group at Lucasfilm, uh, in the educational group. Lucas was like Lucasfilm Learning, I guess it was called. And we basically split up the game into different areas. And he would do one some areas and I would do others. And and both had free reign to, to put our text in and did a really good job of kind of matching stuff so that the tone kind of matched on Last Crusade. Um, there were three of us working on that and primarily Ron and I were doing the coding. Noah Falstein was doing a lot of the dialogues. So he would write out the interactive, that was the first game that had, you know, interactive dialogues you could choose. And those became, you know, ways or puzzle chains where you could, or puzzle trees that you can get through um, to a certain point. And, I believe that Ron and I implemented those. I don't think Noah did. He might have done some of that. Um, and then again, we split the game up into different sections. It's it's kind of funny that that um, you became the director of Zack McCracken, right? So it was like the roles got reversed in in compared to Maniac Mansion. Yeah, well, in in Zack, it was I was the project leader and the designer and one of the programmers. And Ron was really there as, you know, help with the scum engine, probably more early. He, he really wasn't, I don't remember, he believed he was working on this for very long. So it was really, you know, making the changes I requested to give us some of the features I wanted that I didn't have in Maniac Mansion. One of the things he did was, whereas a lot of the user interface was hard-coded, in Maniac Mansion and Zach, it all got turned into scripts so we could have it much more customized. It was under my control. So you could have the, the disappearing words. Yeah, disappearing verbs and changing the verb set based on whether you're mind licking with a squirrel or a, <laughs> or, or a yak. Um, and still having the ability to switch between characters, but all that kind of became more in our control. Um, and I think the other difference was the whole concept of pseudo rooms, um, which we used for like all the different airports. You know, there was really the same, essentially the same room, but turning on and off different objects to make it look different. Or the mazes, um, where it was really one room, but with kind of, in the logic of the game, you could, we think we had a numbering system. So any any room number above 128 was considered a pseudo room and it would me- remember the state of objects in it, but we could draw from the same imagery for each of these. Um, and that was because we were so severely limited with how much storage we had. So we were you know, on our floppy disks. So we wanted to stretch that as much as possible. When was it decided to do another scum? Was that an idea from the start? Because originally it was just going to be the engine for Maniac Mansion, right? Yeah, I don't know if Ron had envisioned a series of games. Um, I mean, it seemed like a natural when I was coming to the end of my time on that, that my next game was going to use it because I just spent all that time learning it and it was incredibly flexible. And I loved that kind of game. So. Yeah, it just seemed like a natural to say, yeah, we're going to, I'm going to use Scum for the next one. And then Indy, the same thing, same thought. And and every other 
came off the path as well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for a long time. So did you get to pick the people on the team? Was that a role you were assigned to? Like, who would you work with on Zach or on Indie? Yeah, definitely on Zach. Um, on Labyrinth, that really didn't happen. It was more like, let's do this and who's going to work on it. Um, on Maniac Mansion, Ron Ron and Gary, probably Ron mostly chose. On um, Zach, I chose. On Indie, um, we knew who was... I mean, there it was... Um, another, since it was a film, there was a hard deadline. The idea of throwing three of our senior designers on one project had never been done before. So that was something we tried to, in order to get the game done a lot faster than it would have been done otherwise. And we had the art resources we need for that. Um, so we, we could choose artists, but you know, it was pretty clear who we didn't have like 30 people to choose from. It was like, okay, here's, here's the team we have to work with. Yeah. There's these three people. So yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, and yeah. And, and that was, that was the last one I worked on in terms of adventures. I think I was, I helped produce a pipe dream more as a managerial role. Um, but after that, I, w I spent a year as director of operations and then went off to do the location-based entertainment project. So I wasn't involved in the other ones. Yeah. It's, I think it's fun to talk a little bit about Indiana Jones because, well, it seems like a sort of a pivotal game. It's like the first modern game that has all the features, like it has the dialogue trees and it has the... Yeah, well, that was also the... A few things changed. That was the first game that we started off on DOS... It also changed. We were using our PCs as the in development environment, so we no longer had to do cross compiles. Um, we had two graphics cards in the PCs. So one was the like the debugging screen. So this is like nineteen what nineteen eighty eight eighty nine. So we could actually sounds advanced. Yeah, we could actually look at and see and, and set breaks and and debug it a lot more easily. We knew we weren't going to go back to the old platforms, so we didn't. We didn't have that constraint of like, okay, this has to work on an Apple II or this has to work on a Commodore or whatever. We pretty much said, okay, those are those are gone. So it was really higher end platforms as opposed to lower end. You know, so that's it. There were multiple versions that you know redid the graphics for, um, you know, say for Amiga and Atari ST and for the FM Towns. You know, there's one thing I've I've been wondering this probably, I don't know, since I played this as a kid for the first time. Why Indie 3? Why is it, what's the, what's up with the three? How is it, what are the first two? First of all, it's the third movie. So, <gasps> yeah, there is um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and then Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom were the first two movies. And Indie 3 is the, the movie name, not the game name. Right. So... We just refer to it as Indie 3 because it's always, that's the name, the reference to the movie. Yeah, because it's also the third indie game that I played because I played the action game first and then the Temple of Doom action game. So to me, it was also <laughs> my third uh -huh. Indiana right. Jones game. And then I was okay. always confused about this. Right. But yeah, this makes sense. We got a question actually from a user, which is a little bit about how this game is a lot more advanced than the previous ones. So the question is, what's the most complex thing you managed to do with the Scum uh, engine in, in the games you were involved with? And were there limits you couldn't get past in the versions of Scum that you were using? 
Well, I think every time we did a new game, there are always new features that the designer was requesting. So there are always incremental improvements. I think in this one, there was one of the things was the idea of doing like these little mini games. So remember the, the whole bit with the biplane and having to um, you know try to have like a kind of arcade style game that was still written in Scum, where you're shooting planes while you're flying the biplane. Um, the dialogue interface was new. Um, the concept of indie point or IQ points, the idea that we wanted you to play through multiple times because there were often different ways to solve a specific puzzle. And so we were giving, you know, kind of meta points um, for every time you solve something a certain way. Um, and if you went and played it again, we, re- we would retain that array and give you more points when you tried to solve it a different way. So the idea that you could maybe fight your way out of a confrontation with a, with a Nazi guard, or you could have a dialogue to get by, or you could give them an object to get by. And um, each of those would give you a point, but you couldn't do the same thing in the same game. Um, I guess you could if you saved them and reloaded. Maybe that would work. But the game's not aware then, no. Yeah, I think we might have still saved the points because um, it wasn't attached to the save game specifically, although I'm not sure about that. And it was unusual to have three designers on it and issues that came up. This is not a technical thing, but issues that came up because we had two or three of us would have different ideas of how things should play out. Um, I've told the story about the, near the, the end sequence where um, Ron had done written up how he wanted the dialogue to go for the, the end part. Um, he may have actually coded it. And then Noah was also writing up his idea of how it should be. And his was much more true to the film and Ron's was much more irreverent and funny. And um, I, when I put Ron's in, I, I assumed it was placeholder. And when I got Noah's, I was going to put his in and we had this meeting. It was got a little rough and not rough, tense. And, and Ron said, no, it wasn't placeholder. That's how I wanted it to be. And, and so, so we ended up, the comp- my, was my compromise was to use a random number generator to switch between the different versions of the dialogue, whether it be Noah's version or Ron's version. So you could play it through if you, and see different lines would change that would be either more irreverent or, or more film-like. <laughs> That's great. So was there no overall project leader then? Like, no, no, I think Noah was a, originally the official project leader, but it, fairly early on, we just all became project leaders. So there wasn't really a, a arbitrary that someone that would just say, this is how it's going to be. It was very, very consensus-based, and, and which was fine because we were all good friends and had similar design aesthetics. So it didn't come up very frequently that we had a problem with how we were going to do it. Um, you know, my, my memories of that game, of that team was that, you know, really, you know, very positive. And we all knew what we had to do. We all had the deadline. We were having a lot of fun doing it and all worked together to, to figure out issues when they come up. You know, we get together for meetings a lot of times, you know, maybe short meetings to just cover what we were to do for that day. Right. Did you did you show it to Steven Spielberg at any point? 
Yeah. Um, well, very in the very beginning of the project, we had a short meeting with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, where we were asking questions about what their expectations were, whether we could kill off Indy during the game, <laughs> let him die. Because um, I think we remembered something where in in the Star Wars universe, you should never, you know, if they had a game, don't let Luke die or don't do that, don't kill them off. So he, and Steven said, sure, yeah, kill them off. Sure, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also like how, how constrained we were to the script and to the movie. And could we kind of go outside the lines and um, Stephen was actually encouraging us to take it to South America and do this whole these other storylines and out and you know, way more than we could have done. So knowing that we we could um, keep it, you know have alternate interactions and endings and change things up um, was was totally fine. Um, invent our own scenes and dialogue, and um, as long as it still felt like indie, I mean, they, we had to stay true to the character but not have to stay true to the film exactly. So a lot of freedom. And they weren't hovering during it. Um, there was a point where we, we did have playable versions where Steven Spielberg, who, who is, was, or I don't know if he still is, but was a, a big game player, um, actually did get to play through the games and was constantly calling up, I think, Noah, maybe Ron. I don't think I got any calls, unfortunately, asking for hints about how to get past this point. And... <laughs> and um, so there was like, oh, Steven's asking how to do it. And, and don't tell him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so yeah, that was, that was good. That was a really good working experience. That's cool. He was interested like that. I, th- I think out of that probably came the dig. Cause I know that was a story idea that Steven had that he wanted to see first. He wanted to be done as a movie or as a, yeah, as a movie, but it was too big for that. And the idea of offering it as a game. So that went through multiple designers. I, I was one of the few people there besides Ron who never ended up working on that game. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I think Indy was the last uh, adventure game you did over at Lucas, probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Although they kept on making lots of them after. Yes. Did you Did you play all of them? I, I didn't. I did play... Um, the Monkey Island ones. Um, the first Monkey Island game, I remember a brainstorming session. So by then I was the director of operations. So I remember a brainstorming session that I did sit in on and got to participate in. And at least one of my ideas ended up in the game, which was fun. A little, little, little piece. Um, but which piece was it? Do you remember? Oh, it was there. There is a place where you see these three skeletons. And if you click on them, it says, I think they're named Shish Kebabs, Shish Joe's, Shish Larry or something like that. Um, and that was my joke. Um, that's probably it. There might have been other, I mean, I remember we, we would do, Ron started doing this thing, these thing called pizza parties, um, where we would, um, he'd set up a bunch of computers in a common area and bring out a lot of pizza. And we'd set up a bunch of save games of different points in the game and have people just sit down and, and play through and watch. Um, it's really what we now call play test where you, you're really watching without commenting as people are playing through and asking them what's happening, what are you thinking? And, you know, where people were getting stuck, you know, things that we assumed 
everyone could figure out, which turned out to be really hard, is the best way to find that out. It's not really bug, it's not bug testing. It's really watching, it's more like focus testing where you're kind of watching what people are doing and seeing whether it, it, it works as well as you thought it was going to work. So that started under your supervision or? Well, I think Ron, Ron came up with that. But yeah, I remember that happening when I was there. And um, I only did that for a year. I was, I was really helping bring the, the games division from being um, all reporting to Steve Arnold. Uh, we had kind of grown from 15 people when we got to the ranch to about 60, 65 people. And when we were leaving the ranch, who got too big for it and everyone was still officially reporting to Steve and that was just wasn't great. So I came on, he asked me to help by bringing in different, you know, hiring different heads of the different groups, like an art head and a customer support lead and a, a QA lead. And um, I initially was, the programmers were reporting to me um, and I reported to Steve and just you know, broke it up so it was easier to handle. And it was it was okay. I, mean, I much preferred working on a game. It was more managerial than I would have preferred. So his promise was that you know do this for a year, hire someone to replace yourself, and then <laughs> and then you can do the location based entertainment stuff you really wanted to do, um, the Disneyland like stuff. And that's he kept his word, and I got to do that. That's great. Yeah, did that actually? I, I'm. I I am really not very knowledgeable about this at all. Yeah, well, um, well with this one, there was um, we ended up doing a joint venture with Hughes Simulation, and they're the ones that at the time were doing all the flights, professional flight simulators for the military and for commercial airlines. And the idea was they would use their flight simulator technology, and and we would provide the storytelling part and we were going to build a pod um, which would be networked together with seven other pods that you would sit in with another player and play a game and i got to do a star wars game finally yes (laughs) and i basically took ideas from rescue on fractalus because you're flying through these mountainous terrains but now i had instead of a an atari 800 screen I had a um, 10 foot wide screen <laughs> with um, actually three video, three video projectors um, gang together, projecting off of a screen, which just bounced off of a, a curved mirror, a collimating mirror, which made it look like you were looking out into infinity as opposed to like a few feet away. So you're like flying over this vast landscape. Mm-hmm. And instead of a uh, six, you know, eight-bit computer, we were using high-end computers and an image generator from the flight you know, from high-end flight simulator. So it was, you know, doing sixty frames per second with anti-aliasing and fog effects and all all this in you know nineteen ninety one ninety two. And um, we built a system to do um, 5.1 sound, so it had um, you know stereo front center and and Surround back and, and a subwoofer, you know, pretty much because we were working with the THX people on su- suggesting how we should set up the sound system. And we had an Amiga as the heads down display. Um, so you could see a map of where you're flying. And it was uh, hugely fun. You know, basically, we were flying a 
an X-wing and fighting against a bunch of TIE fighters and and dogfights in the sky and and remember having to work hard with the Hughes people because they were always trying to get things accurate to rep to match how a real plane would fly. And I say, no, this is this has to be um, way different. Flight dynamics have to be where you you have much faster acceleration, deceleration, faster turning radius. So it just feels much more like a um, arcade game as opposed to a real thing. And unfortunately, um, the um, price for all the equipment we were using at the time to actually go into a theme park was just too high. Um, and I think just the image generator itself was like a million dollars at the time. And and the 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 mirrors the the way they were doing the mirrors I think they're doing the mirror with with mylar that was being um, sucked by a vacuum into the right shape as opposed to an actual glass mirror, which saved money but it was still still expensive to do it all. So you know, the project ended up closing down. Hughes got the rights to try to carry it forward, and they never got it out to market. I don't think anyone actually was willing to buy it at the time. And of course, now you could do, you know, after that you could do it much, much less expensively with much better graphics and and everything. But it was still um, a really fun project. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It was actually completed then. I mean, you could play it. Yes. We we, we only built one pod and the other planes were, were flown on workstations. So they weren't, there weren't um, multiple pods, but, you know, from inside the pod, the experience was you're playing against other other planes flying around. Yeah. I have a video. There's a video I posted on, on YouTube from them that you could look up. Ah, we'll, we'll link it together when we publish it. Yeah, look for Mirage, Lucasfilm Mirage, M-I-R-A-G-E. Did you stay in touch? I mean, that was the last project you probably did for Lucas or didn't, wasn't it? Um, yes. Um, there did, I mean, we, we did a... Um, 25-year anniversary reunion, so 25 years after the start of the games group, it was 18, 1982, so this was the 2007, where a bunch of the early people gave a talk to all the LucasArts people at the time in their facility in San Francisco and had presentations, and then we had like a party where we invited like 70 or 80 of the people from the old days over and it's really nice. That was fun. Um, of course, Thimbleweed Park, where I got to work with Ron and Gary again and, and Mark Ferrari. And that was a blast. You know, I was worried that um, it was going to all, wasn't that we wouldn't have the magic that we had back then, that it was just going to be really awkward. Did you worry about that? I did um, for about five minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just I mean, I worried say. about it up until five minutes into the first brainstorming session. And, <laughs> and then, and then uh, I said, okay, yeah, this is going to work. And uh, that was hugely fun. And um, I felt like I learned a lot from, from working with Ron. He's probably been more, you know, he was continuously involved in games where I took a pretty long break. Um, in the nineties. So, you know, learning from what he learned and his ideas was really fun. That's cool. But you didn't really stay in touch with him in between all that much then or, or the other people. Yeah. Some, um, Noah, Noah is still a good friend. So we have a tradition of, and he lives nearby. So we've been, you know, 
we have um, a tradition of going out to taking each other out to lunch on our birthdays. So at least that much, at least twice a year. Um, our birthdays are six months apart, so that makes it really good. Um, but also, you know, going out with him and his his wife and me and my wife together for dinners. Not much in the last year, obviously. Uh, um, and seeing each other occasionally for like since there have been occasional speaking events or things that came up that we would do it. But I think Noah was probably the only one where I've had an ongoing social connection with, um, you know, we're, you know, more than just like social media saying hi or something. So can you imagine the development of Thimbleweed Park to be like the nerd version of Space Cowboys in which a crew of veterans is called to compete with the young guns <laughs> and save the world from evil things, in parentheses, bad games? Um, I can imagine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did um, Did working on Thimbleweed Park spark a new interest in adventure gaming. I mean, there's sort of a renaissance going on in a way. I mean, the genre was huge and then it was less so, but now I feel there's more interest in the genre now than there were some years ago. Yeah, I think that there there was this trajectory that happened over the 90s and uh, early 2000s with adventure games where each one was using greater and greater production values and more and bigger budgets and so they cost a lot more but i don't think the audience was growing commensurately so there was a point in 2004 or five when lucas lucas arts just pulled the plug on them all because they i guess they thought they were just getting too expensive for what they were doing or maybe there was an edict that you know if it's not star wars then don't do it i'm not sure exactly what happened since i wasn't there um, but the idea with Thimbleweed Park was, you know, can we, can you go back and do something that feels like the games from back then, but with current quality in terms of aesthetics and you know, get both gameplay and, and production values, but and do it within a budget that's that makes sense. And I think I think that was a huge success in that area. Um, I think that there's, you know, the fact that other People have been doing these games and they've been successful to varying degrees comes from, from maybe partly from that to show that, yeah, here's one way you could do it. You don't have to have, you don't have to do a whole cartoon with all, you know, full, full frame animation and, and, and keep the, keep the price down. So I have the same really good experience. So can you see yourself? Working in another one of these, I mean, I'm sure you have ideas, but is this something you would pursue? Make another adventure game? Do something like this? Maybe Zach McCracken too? Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've never said no to that. Um, the, the whole thing, I mean, there have been a bunch of fan-created sequels or prequels of Zach McCracken, and I haven't played them intentionally because if there ever were another Zach... I didn't want to have game ideas from someone else filter in and not be sure that um, it was mine or theirs. So I wanted to keep it clean if it ever did come up. So yeah, that's a possibility. It's not a goal right now. Um, I kind of pivoted after, I mean, I was actually looking at this even before, like um, looking more at, again, the immersive stuff, you know, um, virtual reality and, and location-based entertainment. And that's, Still, something I'm really 
excited about. Um, again, obviously, haven't done any virtual arcades in the last year or check those out. Um, I think that that's promising, but it's going to take some years before that could happen again. If it does, I mean, the whole idea now, where are people going to be willing to put on um, a VR headset um, without feeling a little squeamish, even though I know that they can be sterilized and, and protected. It's still the idea might take a while for people to um, lose their newly found habits of masking up and being really careful. Um, but hopefully in time, things will, well, be possible again. And, and Yeah, I think it'll happen. I mean, there's something I'm kind of excited about, which Disney's doing, which is a um, Starship or Star Cruiser hotel kind of um, experience. You could look that up online. They, they've, they're saying they're going to open this year. Um, they may have to delay until everyone, until COVID's completely over. But the idea that you board a ship in the Star Wars universe and you spend two days um, on the ship in your own cabin as if you were on a cruise ship, but it's really like a um, star cruiser that's going out into space and activities and role-playing stuff probably and and things that happen the whole time. So you're, you're, you're on it the whole time, except for... Um, an excursion you could take with a shuttle down to um, the Star Wars area at nearby Disney World, um, which, you know, is actually across the street and you're going underground to take the shuttle. But still, you know, keeping the, keeping the fantasy going for the whole time and it really it being a first high-end, long-form version of an immersive entertainment experience. Um, I mean, you've, you can do a 10-minute, virtual reality immersive experience, but I have doing it for like, you know, two and a half days, you know, two nights when everyone, all the, there's a whole cast there that are, um, they're taking role playing and different things, events that probably happen. And you're part of the you know, fighting against the rebellion and whatever. I don't know what the scenario is, but uh, that seems very intriguing to me. So is that something that you're going to be working on in the future? You think? I don't know that I'd be working on it. I definitely want to play it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I, I'm probably, I think at this point for things like Disney there, it's all in-house. I did get to work with Jonathan Ackley when he was at Disney on a um, experience at one of the theme parks in in Hong Kong, uh, at Tokyo Disney Sea, where, where Annie, my wife and I got to go there and design an overlay experience for one of the locations there. And that was, that was really fun. It was, you know, very low tech compared to this. You know, it's basically a treasure hunt with a map. But uh, the idea that we were doing something inside of a, a Disney park that actually still exists, you can still play it. And um, that was a lot of fun. So yeah, I, I would still love to do that kind of a thing. I'm, I'm actually working on my the game I did seven years ago called Rube, Rubeworks, based on Rube Goldberg's cartoons from the... 1930s and 20s, 30s, and 40s, and um, doing a VR version of that. And, oh, are you? Um, yeah. So that one that's coming along. Since we did it initially in initially in Unity as a 3D experience, but on an iPad or or our desktop, um, you know the the core bones of it. You know the the system was already set up to go to th to VR. So we I have a version now where it's not 
prime time ready, but you can, you know, do hand tracking. You can reach in with your hands and pick up an object and, and, and move it. And, or you can use a controller to do that. And it's very fun. It's very cool. Yeah, that sounds great to be actually in one of these crazy devices. Yeah, we're doing it with the idea that this is kind of like a shadow box. That you have this walnut or whatever box and inside is a little scene that you can then interact with and set up. So as opposed to being room scale, it's more like a sit down game where you're reaching in and doing stuff and this little characters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's less freaky maybe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> is there a website up for this project? Um, if you look, if you go to at Rubeworks on Twitter, there's probably a link to it, but I can also send you a link. I showed some early footage from you know, a few months ago of what it looks like. Yeah, cool. Then we can uh, put that along when we publish this. So right. People can find it. That's cool. Right. Did we forget about anything, Florian? I think we got through all the questions we had prepared. Yeah. So... I, I think that's it. But I mean, if you have something to add or, or you know, if there's anything you'd like to say, then then please go ahead. But yeah, I think you covered it all. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, David. And uh, well, have a great day. Okay, you too. And thank you for the conversation. It's been a great honor for us. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's the interview. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us, David. When David said he was a bit awed by meeting Douglas Adams, this interview was not very different for us, talking to such a legend of gaming history. Now, obviously, this is an extra episode. The next regular episode about Day of the Tentacle and Maniac Mansion will be out in just two weeks. I'd also like to take the time to remind you of our game giveaway, which will last until the end of March 2021. Martin contributed the music to the futuristic top-down DOS racing game Slipspeed and got two boxed copies of the game for free. Obviously, he has no need for two copies, so we're giving one copy away to a listener. To take part in the lottery, all you have to do is write a review about our podcast on whatever podcasting site or app you use, and send us a link to that review to club at dosgameclub.com. We'll draw the winner and announce them in episode 55, which will be about Rise of the Triad and which is actually DOS Game Club's four-year anniversary. And yeah, that's it for this time. Check out our other episodes on dosgameclub.com or the podcasting app of your choice. And you can talk to us on Twitter, where we are at DOS Game Club, or visit us on IRC, where we occupy the channel DOS Game Club on Afternet. Thanks for listening, and bye! <laughs>